My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. So here we go in three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. This week in the studio, a retired federal law enforcement agent with 29 plus years with the government. He worked with U.S. Border Patrol, U.S. Customs and Homeland Security Investigations. Most of his career was spent in some form of undercover operations, both domestic and international, whether that being actually undercover or supervising a team of undercover agents. He served tours of duty in Spain, Italy, Venezuela, Colombia, and very briefly in Afghanistan and Thailand as well. His operations have resulted in the seizure of over $268 million, 1,500 kilos of cocaine, and hundreds of arrests and convictions. But that's not where it stops. Even after retirement, he joined Western Union, and now he works tirelessly to conduct security risk assessments and conduct high-risk commercial relationship investigations. He even can be found on IMDb for some of his acting roles. I'm excited to introduce Alex Alonzo. What's up, man? Hey, Justin. How are you, man? I am so glad you're here. (laughs) Thank you. And it is a pleasure to be here, too. So we got together through Bob Starkman. Uh, we did uh, an interview with him and him and uh, Joe Pistone. And, and as soon as I got done, it's hilarious. He said, man, I got this other guy that's got to come on your show. He's one of the best guys in the world. I absolutely love him. And I was like, well, let's get him. And, and your name was the first name that came out of his mouth. Uh, he said you were a stand-up guy that he brought you over with him. And you just kind of took off in your career from there. But before even that, let's go back to your early life, because that was kind of important that he was telling me about. Now, you grew up, uh, from what I understand, as Cuban descent, correct? Yeah, grew up in Hialeah, Florida. Yeah, and so I've had another person on here from Cuban descent that actually his parents left Cuba, and he lived there and uh, became a SAR major in the military and did a bunch of other things. But he talks highly of Hialeah. how it really turned him into the person he was, uh, especially having parents that were immigrants from over there. So can we go over yours a little bit about growing up in that lifestyle? Sure. And it's, and it's probably, we probably have the same, a very similar story. Like my parents, they left in uh, 1960, 61. They left, they left Cuba, come, came to Miami, actually first went to New York. And then my mom, the cold was too much, but they came back down and settled in Hialeah, which at the time was a community growing a lot of, of, of uh, immigrants from Cuba coming down, fleeing the regime there. And, and that's what it was. So you had a, you had a, it was a very unique uh, situation, you know, growing up because you were, you were on the street, everyone is speaking in English at home. It's Spanish. You're growing up bilingual. You don't even know it. And you know, you're, you're, you're running into, uh, people that are, you, you either, you either 
went one way, which was a bad way, or you went the other way, uh, uh, which is the good way, but you were exposed to both on the street all the time. Well, and it's interesting because Eric, who we were talking to before that, said almost the exact same thing, that that there were ways that you got in trouble there, but that if, if you kind of stayed on the right and the kind of the narrow path and your parents were a big influence in your life, you came across those things, you had your chances to get in trouble, but you tried to stay on the right away. Exactly. My, my dad was like, he was a hardworking guy. He worked the night shift. And so if I, you know, I usually would try to get home before he did, because if not, he'd be like, where, where have you been? What are you doing? You know, uh, it was, it was, it was, he, he ruled a tough, you know, tough hand, but it, it, it was, uh, it was, I'm glad he did because I, I went the, uh, the right way. Um, I, I remember, you know, my grandfather also lived with us at the time and sitting on the porch with him and he was telling me stories of, you know, all these different places he had been in life. You know, he immigrated from Spain to Cuba and all these things and would tell me all these stories. And I think, man, I wonder one day, you know, what, what, where, what would I do? What, what stories would I tell my grandkids? And I remember during what it was during that I'm sitting on this porch and this, this car parks in front of our house. And I'm probably maybe 17, you know, 18 years old, just just on the verge of, you know, still a smart ass, you know, macho kid, you know, uh, sitting there listening to my grandpa on this car pulls pulls up and, and sits there. And I'm thinking, who are these people? And my mom's about to come home. They're parked in my driveway. So I I approach them, two guys in the car and they're like talking. They, 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 now, now I know they, they were talking on a radio and I'm who are these people? So I bang on the window. The guy gives me one of these, right? He raises his hand, looks at me, just and keeps talking to his partner. And I'm can't figure out what it what it is. So I keep knocking, knocking. I'm banging on the on, on the window, and and uh, all of a sudden, these this guy just reaches into his shirt, whips out a badge, door flies open, throws me into the fence. They get out, run down the street, and a guy that I know is coming down the street, running, fleeing. They take out their guns, they take them down. They had, they had just, they were making an arrest down the street and I didn't know this. And I'm just sitting there in shock, like leaned up against the fence, like what just happened? And as, and as they're pulling the guy into the car, getting him into the car, you know, the guy looks at me, winks, and he goes, just doing my job, just doing my job, kid. Gets in the car, takes off in a really cool, it was a white Camaro, really, really cool. And I'm thinking, that's a job. I, I can be, I can do that. <laughs> And that kind of like kind of pushed me into going into the law enforcement way. Well, let me, uh, and if you said it, I missed it. How old were you and what year are we talking about right now? So I'm, I'm 17 years old, probably, I'm probably 1970. I, I'm, I was born in 61, right? So I'm 61 years old right now. I, I, so it was probably 1975, 76 or something like that, okay. I guess. I don't know, 78, maybe 77, around that time. Okay, so let me ask you then. So no family members that I've heard of from you have any law enforcement experience or anything like that, right? This is like no, the no. first time you're seeing that. And you're actually seeing undercovers and people that are doing the job that, quite frankly, you did for the rest of your adult life. So do you think that that moment right then was what set you on that path? Because you didn't have any of that in the past. No, Dustin, that's a hundred percent, right? Most of, most of my encounters with law enforcement before were, you know, them chasing us through the neighborhood for something we had done or, or, you know, school type 
uh, truancy type officers, that kind of thing. No, nobody in my family, you know, my family comes from a working class that no, nobody was law enforcement. Um, I had no other influence other than, and so I think back to that time, and I really think that had a lot of influence into that's the career I thought I wanted to do. That was something that I thought was so cool to do. Um, but yeah, no, 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 pre, no previous uh, family member had, had been involved in that. And, in it law seemed, and it seemed interesting that, I mean, you were 17 years old before that actually started. So that, I mean, to be that far along in your, you know, young adult life uh, and kind of yeah. realizing, whoa, this is a job. I think that that helped maybe push you into the undercover role, the narcotics role, because who knows what they were actually arresting him for. But I think that might have pushed you in that direction. Now, my question, though, is, is that you left for a while and we'll get into it in a minute to do Border Patrol and stuff like that. But what right. kept you in Florida and Miami for the majority of your career? I mean, that's where you got your real you got your legs underneath you in your law enforcement career. That's it. That's exactly it. So it really started. So after that happened to me, and and so as soon as I knew that I could turn into, you know, apply for for the job of a police officer, I did. Right. I waited and I waited and and uh, and I applied with all, every police department I could. Right. And I every every time I would get rejected because I had a really bad driving record. Like they would say, you know, you're gonna you're going to be pulling people over and you got more suspensions than, you know, anything. So I finally, one particular police department actually, you know, I, I went through all their, their, you know, requirements and passed their polygraph, their psychological, everything. And the final interview came and I remember sitting down with all the brass there and, and the chief just looked at the, my, my file and said, you know, we'd love to have you, but the problem is your driving record. You have, you know, you've been sus licensed, suspended, you're going to be pulling people over, giving people tickets and your driving record's worse than they are. And it, it, it was like somebody had punched me in the gut. I was like, man, I was just thinking, you know, all my childhood stuff is coming back to bite me in the butt. And I, and I did, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And, uh, I, I eventually, eventually got home and I had been applying for every agency and, and I got this yellow envelope in the mail. And it was from the Immigration and Naturalization uh, Service at the time, the INS, which was under the Department of Justice, which the U.S. Border Patrol was under that department, right? And so I got this letter. I looked at it, and they have, you know, you would come in for an initial interview, and I called them up, and, and I did a little, you know, looking, and I thought, okay, they carry a badge, they carry a gun. That sounds like something I'll do. So I, I went with them and eventually made it through the system. So let's let's talk about the border patrol because I want to come back to Florida in a minute. But let's talk about the um, everything that happened with border patrol and, and you know and different things like that. So U.S. Border Patrol agent McAllen in Kingsville, Texas. We're talking about eighty six, eighty seven. So my my first question is: You graduated valedictorian out of your border patrol class. So going out into actually doing this work you've wanted to do it since you were 17 you got turned down by all these agencies you make it through the program and and show look i was made for this you guys made a mistake not hiring me but my question to you is do you think that that hindered you or helped you once you hit your actual patrol so i i would say it helped right i would think it helped because I was so intent, I was so like, you know, uh, wanting to prove it that I could do this, that I can make it. And I, I realized how 
important this job was. And I knew that this was my career, my future. I, I, I just I just felt that I just knew it. And so I was I was going to do everything I could to, you know, I studied hard. I made sure that, uh, you know, in the Border Patrol, one of the requirements back then, and I believe it still is today, is you have to know the, the, the Spanish language. It's it's one of you have because you're mainly on the on the U.S., you know, Mexican border. Right. So. So that was that was your first duty assignment. You're going to go there. So the, one of the main requirements that they needed, in addition to understanding immigration law and all the other laws, was language, Spanish, the ability to, co to communicate with the community you're going to be dealing with. So I already had that. It wasn't formal training, right? I, did, I, did, I just learned Spanish growing up because my parents, right? And that's just how it was. It was my first language, but I wasn't formally trained. Like I couldn't tell you a present, you know, if, if you were to tell me, all right, Alex, describe what the present pronoun of this and that, I would not be able to do that. But I could tell you, translate this sentence and I could translate that sentence and I would get it across. So I, would, I was I was scoring super high on the Spanish, um, you know, tests and all that. And sometimes even the, the, the instructors would get frustrated with me because they would try to say that, well, Alex, do this in this present past tense or whatever. And I would say, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I can tell you this is how you say the sentence. And, and I would just get A's in, in, in all the time, right? So I didn't have to worry too much about the Spanish. So I focused hard every day. I mean, studied my ass off in, in, in the immigration law and everything else. So I, so I would make sure I passed. Well, let me ask you, though, go, going on the language a little more, the Cuban Spanish and the Mexican Spanish, they're way different from each other. The Cuban Spanish would be, I guess, what you consider, quote, unquote, formal or proper Spanish, and then you're speaking it a different way. So did that ever become a problem? So we understand that you made it through, you know, your tests and everything, but when you're actually putting it into practice, speaking to people coming across the border, does that ever become a roadblock for you or does it just kind of flow? It, well, it, it, it certainly was different. And, and, and I grew up in, in Miami, Hialeah, you know, it was mainly all Cuban Spanish, right? And I had some influence from the Spanish Castilian Spanish from my grandparents, right? The, the, the very formal, very, you know, fit, you know, I speak to the theta and all that stuff. Right. So I had, but, but Mexican Spanish I had never really been exposed to until I got to the Academy and the board and I started meeting guys from the border and understanding, Oh, wow, you, you say things differently here. So yeah, at first it was not easy. Uh, Dustin, I should call you right. Dustin, at first, at first it was not easy. Uh, it was I had to kind of adapt my Spanish to understand what they meant, right? And border Spanish is totally different from interior Spanish in Mexico, right? So you had to really decipher all that. So it was it, it, it was a paper wise and studying wise was no no problem. But when you actually did speak to somebody, you know, when you're pulling somebody over, or when you're stopping someone in the middle of the night, it, it, it you had to really, you know, at least I did. I had to really focus and understand to to make sure we communicate it right. So when you're doing this, you know, you're working remote locations with small teams. Now, back then, we're talking about a different border crisis in the 80s. Um, and I can even think of like 89, <coughs> 90, where you go over into uh, Juarez, Mexico, or you go over into Tijuana, and it was kind of a thing, and there wasn't really a big, I guess you would say, a stigma to it. You're looking at a different border crisis then versus now. So 
when you're focusing in, what are you focusing on? Just the immigrants coming across? Are you focusing on counter-narcotics? What is it that you guys are working on back then? So in 86, which is when I went in, uh, there was a, a big focus on, on narcotics and, and seizures. And particularly where I was assigned to was, although it was the McAllen sector, it was the Kingsville, um, it was a Kingsville station, right? Which was like a, uh, a, a checkpoint, right? So, so by the time anybody was getting through that checkpoint, you were, you were already had traveled some ways from the border and would most likely either be transporting either illegal aliens or, or narcotics or so we were kind of trained in, in how to, you know, talk to individuals, see, you know, check their cars, check their trucks and, and, and that kind of thing. But we were focused on both, I would say. And so for me, it was just, for me, it was brand new. For me, everything was exciting and fresh and new and I couldn't wait. I was called what they call the trainee, right? Uh, you, you're, you get the worst shifts, the worst thing and you're, but it didn't matter to me. It was like, Give me more. I love that. I wanted to learn and absorb and, and do all that. So let's talk about some of the ways that they were doing that back then, because as we both know, the way they smuggle these days is unbelievable. And, and I'm not just talking narcotics. I'm talking everything that you can possibly think of up into including humans. So what are the ways that you're looking for back then? Because now there are just like I said, just a multitude of ways. Was it the same way back then, or was it pretty much standard practice of what they did? I guess it, I guess the same was like, yeah, I would say it, it was up to the ingenuity of who the, 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 the smuggler, right? So uh, at the checkpoint, you it's kind of in a way it's all right because you're you're stand, you're waiting there you're, and you're seeing what's approaching you, right? At the checkpoint, people always tried to get around the checkpoint, and we had different you know, tactics for that. Right. But at the checkpoint, you're, you're going to go through the whole process. And we had, we had expert guys that, that were excellent at interviewing the drivers and talking. And then while they're doing that, they're observing the whole thing. They, they would tell me, go look under here. You're, you're going to find a, uh, you know, a, 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 an extra space there. And sure enough, I would be looking at this truck and I'm thinking, there's no way the cargo that they're hauling, there's no way there's somebody in there. And sure enough, the way they placed it, the way they did it, and they'd have people in there or drugs in there, um, so yeah, it was just a variety of, of ways they did it with the human trafficking and with the narcotics back then, did you see as much violence as there is today or was it more low key back then? Because I really don't remember growing up of hearing that much about border violence. Yeah, I just, I, I, um, you know, I, I, you're right. I, I didn't pay attention to it like I do now, right? Like how it is now, right? I don't remember that it, it being so violent, but um, as far as on the border there, right? So I'm sure, I'm sure that it was, but at least the, the, I was, and I was there for a short time too. That's when I was only there from, let's say I got hired in September um, and went to work, real work. Otherwise I was at the academy, but real work, uh, probably I, gra I graduated February, I believe it was, Raph, January, February, and then February um, for like a few months I worked because by April I was already being hired by customs to come back to Miami, Florida. But So the, the limited time I had there, um, I got into a few uh, incidents there, um, but it wasn't, you're right, it was, I don't remember it being as violent uh, uh, as, as we say these days. 
Well, so in March of 1987, like you said, you weren't there very long. You go over and become a special agent uh, criminal investigator, correct, for U.S. Yes. Customs. Um, how did that process happen? Was it they asked you to come over? Were you trying to get there the whole time? Was that part of the same organization back then? How did that work? <laughs> so, so I had... Like every good border patrol agent at that time, they had every border patrol agent was always trying to get into another area, right? So I, I was, I had, I had been hired. I was so grateful and happy, but I also had filled out an application to go to customs because customs, I could work out of the Miami office, which is where my family was and where I was from, right? I went to Texas by myself. You know, I, I, I knew no one. Um, so in Miami had everything, right? I had all my family. So I had filled out an application and ironically on the day of graduation from the Border Patrol Academy from, you know, session 202, Mean Green 202, um, the background guy from the Treasury, U.S. Customs, is sitting in the crowd waiting and I'm giving the speech. You know, I was the, the guy who gave the speech and I got I, I finished my speech and I, I go out. I'm in my brand new uniform. You know, I feel so good. I just been pinned my badge. And the guy says, hey, you're Alex Alonzo. Did you apply for? Yes. And he goes. Uh, well, I'm here to do your your background interview. If <laughs> I'm like, come over here, man. Don't don't say it too loud, you know. I, so we go in the back, and he and he does my interview. And so I never I, I thought nothing of it. I thought, well, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, you know, I, I got this job. So I get to you know McAllen, and I love it. I love it. That's I love what I'm doing. And I'm thinking I'm gonna just stay in the border patrol in the border patrol. But one day uh, around March, I guess they had, you know filed whatever it was and, 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 and approved my transfer, right? Cause I was a GS five, right. And they were, they could do a transfer an, an inter transfer from DOJ to treasury. I don't know how that was accomplished, but I have the form 50 to do it. Cause you would have to, you know, they weren't the same agencies, not even the same departments. Yeah. I don't see that happening today. No, I, I don't know how, I don't know to this day how I, I was laterally transferred. Uh, I, I have my form 50. I checked and I was looking at it. I was like, how, how did I do this? So I, I, um, I get a call. Well, actually the, 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 one of the under, I forgot their titles now. I've been so long. So, but the, the, not the, the chief of station, but the under underling there came over to, to my house where I was staying with a bunch of other guys and knocked on my door and said, Hey, Alonzo, we, uh, you know, chief wants to see you. Um, and it was my day off and I'm thinking, oh no, what, what did I do? Cause you know, you're a trainee, you, you can, you're, you're let go like this for anything. So he pulls me into his office and he says, Hey, look, we got this from, from Washington. And I see, and it's a, you know, I have to basically accept the job or not. So he's looking at me. He's like, what do you want to do? And, and he sees I'm hesitant and, and he gets up and he closes the door and he goes, let me, let me just explain something. And he gives me the rundown. I'm a border. I've been in the border patrol for so long. I'm, I'm just a GS, I guess, 13 at the time. Um, he wasn't the chief. He was like the, like the, the like a substation, but he was right. the head of that station. He was a, 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 a senior 13. And he says, it's taken me all this time to get that with customs. You could probably do this in five years. And he gave me like, like the talk that I needed. And I always appreciated that guy because he could have said, ah, you don't want to go to those guys. You want to stay here with us. And, and it would have been a whole different world for me, but he really, really made me see, uh, open my eyes, and 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 I, I sure, you know, I signed, and a couple of weeks later, I was transferred to uh, the Miami office for U.S. Customs. Whole new world. 
Well, yeah. Well, that's interesting to me, though, that you say that. But I almost question, were you nervous about saying yes just yes. because? Well, no, no, no. Were you nervous about saying yes just because you were there right then and you kind of had a bird in hand? Or were you nervous because you weren't sure where your life was going to go? I was more nervous because I had been given... I felt like I've always been the type of guy that's like, and I guess I get this from my father, right? Like appreciative of the Border Patrol was the the, the, the agency that gave me the chance, right? right? Where no one else would give me the time of day. The Border Patrol took a chance on me. They, they, they brought me in. They took me to the academy. They do this. And yeah, granted, you, 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 know, you worked hard and you did it, but and they worked too hard, but they gave me that chance. So I'm thinking... Well, here I am, you know, now I'm going to go and, and sort of like leave these guys behind and go somewhere else. So I was, it was a combination of everything. I was nervous that, you know, I, I was, I was coming across as unappreciative and at the same time, not sure I was already liking this job. I felt I was getting the hang of it. And now I'm going to another world, have to go through another academy to learn, you know, the, the, the other type of law, right? The other border law, right? So I wasn't sure, but I knew, I knew that that it was another opportunity and my family was there. So it was just, I had to do it. Now, my question, and I said we would go back to Florida in a minute. Of course, you moved <clears throat> to Florida in 1987, March 1987 timeframe. You go back yeah. to Miami. What, what made you want to go back there? Because you see a lot of people that join the military or join law enforcement, and they want to get away from where they grew up because sometimes they think it's a hindrance in law enforcement, especially in law enforcement, because you grew up in Miami. So you have the chance of running across people that you knew or people knowing who you are. Other than your family, what was it that drew you back to Miami? Well, so... I always felt, and, 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 and what primarily it was my family, right? But that drew me back, right? But primarily, I, I felt like I knew, I knew Miami. I understood it. I grew up there. I was like, you know, I felt like I could, I could do it, right? I get, and, and, and around the time I had, was getting into law enforcement, you know, I, I, I always loved the fact that, you know, the, the undercover type thing, right? Like, I, I guess maybe it was that influence of those guys back then, you know, in front of my house in Hialeah that got me thinking of that. But I always thought that was something that would be cool to do. Um, so, but you're right, Dustin. When I started working in Miami, the first thing I, I they, they assigned me as a Marine investigator, right? Criminal investigator on the boats. And I remember going into the office there and and, and uh, got in the elevator and one of the guys gets on and he, you could tell he's come off the boats. He's like, he smells like the sea. He's He's looking at me and I'm in my suit, <laughs> you know, I'm ready like to meet the, the, the new guy, the, the new guy. Exactly. I got my shoes all shined up and he's like, are you, are you new here? And I tell him, you know, my story and he's like, oh yeah, yeah. He goes, you know, you're going to be assigned to the boats. Right. And I, and I thought, no, I, I really don't know, but I'm, I'm ready for anything. And he goes, and you're going to be at least five years on the boats before, before you move anywhere else. And I'm thinking to myself, only five years. I, I'm hoping I can stay here for longer than that. But I, I guess at the time, being on the boats was like, you know, you took a pounding every day in the water. Um, but being on the boats was something that people tried to get out of, right? Going to the investigative groups. But to me, it was like super exciting. But but you're right. You hit it on the nose. I bumped into so many people I grew up with or or knew of. 
and they would see me out there in a uniform and wearing a badge, and they were like, "Alex, what are you, what are you doing here? Who, you got a job? You're a, you're a policeman?" Like they would tell me, and I was like, "Yeah." And and I know that they'd be involved in you know waiting for a load or something out there on, on their boat. You know, <laughs> that is <laughs> an like, awkward oh, reintroduction. Super awkward. But but also it was good because because I'm Cuban, right? I had the, I knew the Cuban lingo and the front, and I could talk to people, right? So when we would be out on operations, interdictions as they were called, and we'd stop a boat, and you know there'd be two Cuban fishermen, don't have anything on them, you know. They've got their fishing rods, but no bait, no nothing. And they say, oh, we're out here fishing. And you know, they're waiting for a drop or something. I could talk to them and kind of like get the feel. And I started developing, you know, uh, what what early on was, you know, informants and and, and and that and provided information to the agents. And and that sort of like led me into later on to get into the investigations and stuff. So not only that but let's talk about miami at that time so we're 1987 we're talking probably like season three season four of miami vice the cocaine <laughs> cowboys are going crazy like miami is the center of the Wait. world right then um it's got to be like drinking from a fire hose <laughs> it, it's 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 exactly what it was and miami vice had such an influence on me as well because who didn't want to be Crockett and Tubbs, right? Who didn't want to drive around in the fancy car, dress cool like them, and, you know, be at the clubs, do this, do that, have all these cool things. You know, it was just the, the coolest stuff. You know, you're, you're, you know you're, it's not the typical thing, right? So it, it was, uh, it, it, I, I, I loved, I loved that. And, and, I, and I think they, it did influence me uh, in, in, in my uh, work towards undercover. But, um, but yeah, the, at the time it was, as you said, drinking from a fire hose. We'd be, we'd be in the morning, you know, chasing a boat down that had come in from the Bahamas with a load and you, you'd catch that, bring it in and you're offloading, you know, it, it was amazing. You'd get hundreds of kilos of cocaine, like nothing. It was nothing. Um, and then, you know, another call comes in, Hey, you know, another boat's coming in and you're going to chasing that one into the keys. And I mean, you're constantly working. Whoever wanted to work, you know, as a law enforcement officer, especially in those days in Miami, that was the time to do it. And so does it become almost, I don't, it's not menial that I want to say, but there's so much drugs coming in, so much cocaine. I mean, you're seeing more cocaine in probably a month than a lot of guys see in their whole career. So does it almost become, I don't want to use the word mundane, but that's really the only word that I can think of because you're seeing it so often. It's not that big of a rush anymore. Yeah, it could, it could, it could be, you're right. And that, and it became so, but, but it became sort of like a little competition in between the guys, right? Like, Oh, on our shift, we seized, you know, a hundred keys. And then, and then that night the guys would be like even harder trying to find more to, to do that. So it became that way. And that kept you going. And of course, so the big thing for a criminal investigator that was assigned to the boats was to get off the boats and go into the investigations where you really did the work, right? This was more like, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, this and it was great. You know, you're on a boat in the waters of Miami, going to the Bahamas, back and forth. It was, it was, it was fantastic. I'm a 25 year old guy. I'm, I'm loving it, right? But the real work, the real, real work was done by the elite guys the, the special agents that they were working in this and this is where bob you know 
you know Bob well enough to know he busts chops, right? So he busts my chops all the time because, but 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 his heart is 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 as big as you know as they come, right? So he he was very instrumental. He's like he would invite me because if you wanted to learn, he would he would get you know tell us work. Let's go work on our cases, right? And they would do surveillances with stuff that we really didn't do at the time. They were like you know following people around you know switching up and it was the coolest thing right to, to do that right so he would invite us on on that work in those cases so i guess he took a liking to him and he and he actually was very instrumental in talking to upper management to get myself and and who later became my pop my partner miles son off our, off the boats and he's never let me forget that he's like hey don't worry about it even i rose through the ranks i became his boss and he's like hey i don't care i i got you off the boats <laughs> Well, and, and I think that's the big thing about Bob was he didn't come from that world either. I mean, he came from corrections to start off with and became right. excellent at investigations, but it all kind of culminated from what he learned back then. And you're right. Uh, I think you even wrote in his book that you said that there wasn't a connection that Bob didn't have. You need tennis shoes, T-shirts. He knows a guy. You you need a new holster. He knows a guy. And it, it's almost that, though, that, that I think really brought you along in your career by this guy just exposing you to every single person out there, because I don't think a lot of people would take the time to do that. That's exactly right. That's, and, and man, you hit it on the nose. And I, 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 I mess around with him about the, you know, the T-shirts and this, that. But the reality of it is that it's Bob's personality that he he was among the first, at least as far as I know, to to really, really understand the importance of working with everybody, right? It wasn't like, oh, this is my case, you know, like, and you probably were exposed to that too in your in your career, right? Like, hey, no, this is my case, and that's DEA, and that's you know uh, FBI, and this is that. But he knew, no, 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 you get better, you get more with being, you know, a, like liaisoning with everybody. He he knew everybody at Metro Dade Narcotics. He hooked us up with, uh, he got us badges. We became cross designated Broward sheriffs. And it was the right way to work because, you know, if you're in Broward County and you need to make a stop, you don't want to do it as a customs agent because you're going to expose your operation. You do it as a sheriff. Oh, okay, maybe a local thing, right? So all those things. So his his ability to interact and, and know everybody, that was something that I took from him and later, you know, brought that into, you know, as I, as I went through other places throughout my career, I used those tactics I learned from him. But but he was uh, he was a big influence in my uh, in my uh, career. Well, he did tell me we talked on the phone a couple of days ago and I said, do you have anything to tell me about Alex? And he said he remembered a story just kind of about you being on surveillance when you were very first over with them and uh, following people. And you, you weren't sure whether to go left, whether to go right. You were super nervous with them. <laughs> Was yeah. it just because of who you guys were with and, and you wanted to prove yourself? What was it about that? Because he said you were super nervous on these first kind of things that you were doing with them. So imagine, so here I am, right? I've just come over from the Border Patrol. I'm still learning law enforcement, right? Because I really have only been on the job maybe a year, right? And that was in, in immigration and that kind of, now, now, I'm in, now I'm in customs and I'm learning, but I'm still on the boats. And he would then say, all right, work with us tomorrow. We'd get permission from our you know, supervisors, all right, you're going to work with the Operation Greenback guys. Yeah, those are the money guys. Those are like the top level agents working the top level cases. So here you are, 
you know, a, a, a grunt from the boats now working with these elite agents who have, you know, are putting major, you know, Colombian cartel members in, in jail, this and that, and you're, you're still, you know, figuring things out. So here we are thrown into a surveillance. I don't even know all the other agents. Bob is just saying, you know, this is how we do it. You, you're going to get in there. You're going to do good. And so we're following around. All of a sudden, it, it, it happens that I'm the guy now that has to call it out. So I'm kind of nervous, right? So I'm I'm doing the best I can. Okay, he's making a left over here. He's doing this and that. And I get all like nervous and I call out uh, the wrong thing. I, I said the guy went into this store when he really didn't. Luckily, there had been another agent that had kind of been with me ready to pick up the tail. And he, and he calls it out and says, no, no, he didn't go into, you know, store number B. He went into store number A. I got him right then. And then all of a sudden, it's like, all right, we got it. We got it. And I was kind of like inched out, right? And then I came back on the surveillance. I was afraid to get in any position to, uh, you know, to be the main guy. But And so later, Bob never said a word like, like, oh, you screwed up, you know, da, da, da. I, and I felt bad. I told him, and he goes, no, nah, what are you talking about? We do this all the time. And then, like, never again. And I thought, okay, that's it. That'll be the last time I get invited out. But he kept on calling, and, and, and it was almost like a humbling learning lesson, right? And so here's this main big-time agent who I perceived, you know, is looking down, and I'm thinking, oh, I screwed up. I'm never going to. But, but that's how you learn, right? That's how you learned. And he, he, he took it as – just chalk it up. Now you'll pay more attention. You'll realize what you're doing. And, and sure enough, that's what it was. So, yeah, that's that uh, that always stuck with me. And and years later, he never even knew it. Just years later, I told him, hey, Bob, you know what I always respected about you? That you you did this. And he's like, he, he barely even remembered what I was talking about. But uh, that, he, so that, that's respect he, for him. He's a fantastic guy. Uh, always oh, yeah. willing to help someone. I want to talk about one major operation that you did while you're in Miami. Uh, you worked on Operation Overlord. Now, yes. for everyone that doesn't know, Operation Overlord was also a World War II uh, operation that happened. So if you're looking for this one, it's very hard to find on the Internet uh, exactly what happened in it. Now, it did result in the seizure of over 3,300 pounds of cocaine and the seizure of over $1.6 million. You guys also arrested 76 people. But there was more to it than that. A uh, hundred spinoff investigations happened from this. Yep. So can we talk and kind of walk our way through this operation? You know, not not the intricacies and the minutia of it, but kind of beginning, right. middle and end of how we got onto this, what we did and then how we ended it up. So so man, you, you, you do your homework. So. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so myself and I had a partner, Miles, right, who Bob also was instrumental in helping us out, you know, get, get him off the boat. When we first were assigned to an investigations group, we got assigned to a, a um, like an intelligence group, right? They took us off the boats, but didn't put us into the real investigative groups. They put us into an intelligence group, which meant that, you know, the, the, uh, let's say the inspectors, the uniform guys would be out at the port or the seaport or wherever and make a seizure. And so, you know, they seize, let's say five kilos. It wasn't five, five kilos of cocaine back then. wasn't even enough to get, you know, the real agents out of bed, right? They'll be like, ah, give it to those intelligence guys. So we'd show up myself and my partner, Miles, and part of this group, get all the Intel and sort of like file it for, you know, put lookouts out and all that stuff. It was, it was a lot of admin work, right? So, we, but we were developing our own style, right? And so the inspectors 
who are saying, man, you know, we're, we're doing all these cases. We're going out there and searching and finding this. And these agents are not even responding. You guys are always responding. We're going to start calling you guys out. So one of the times they called us out, I, I go out to a warehouse. It's an empty warehouse. It, it, there's a, there's a, what they call a bill of lading with some information on it. And I get that information and I take it to the inspectors and I go, look, let's put a look out on this company. If we know they, there, there's a shipment search and I'll bet you there's going to be something on it. So sure enough, a week later, we're still in this investigative group. A week later, ship comes in with a container, same name of the consignee, right? It's the name of the company. They search it. Boom. They find cocaine. It's pumice stones. These, these weird rocks from uh, pumice stones. It's used to like, you know file down. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now right? so, what country were these uh, coming out of Colombia? Okay. They're coming out of Colombia. So, so here it is my lookout from my, uh, just finding a piece of paper and doing that work got us this seizure. Right. But because I was assigned to an Intel group, I wasn't allowed to actually work the case. It had to be given to a task force guy. So we're like, man, that's so unfair. We should do our own operation. Right. So, but for that particular case, my supervisor at the time spoke to the supervisor of the, the group that was taking it. It was George Bush's South Florida Task Force, DEA and Customs working it. So a particular DEA guy took it, but he felt bad because he knew the work that I had done. He goes, you're going to work at this with us, kid. You're going you're gonna to ride around with us. So, so it was my first undercover, technically, sort of. Uh, I, 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 we, I had a taxi. The, the, one of the groups had a taxi, and I borrowed it. And I said, all right, I'm going to be the taxi driver, just driving around on surveillance. That'll be cool. I could get into the places. Anyway, so sure enough, we follow this truck around all over the place. Uh, it ends up at a location. And um, I'm, I get an idea and, and uh, to, to say, hey, listen, because now it pulls into a place and they can't really see it right. They're trying to figure out where the load is, what's happening. Are they unloading it? And so I call and I say, hey, guys, I got a taxi. I could just drive right in, pretend I'm lost, and ask them this question. Right? So they're like, all right, that's a great idea. Okay, we're going to do it. Give me two minutes. Let's get in place, whatever. So while that's happening, Dustin, the car, my door opens, and, and a lady gets in the back seat. <laughs> and I'm like, excuse me, man, what are you doing? I forgot, right, that my car is a taxi. I'm, I'm still, you know, I know it is, but at the same time, you know, because all the gadgets inside are, are the government stuff, right? So right. she's like, I've been waiting here. I've been waiting for you to come here. I called you two hours ago, whatever. And, and I'm like, man, get out of my car. And, and they're like, all right, Alonzo, get ready. We're about to go. I'm like, get up. I'm trying to get this lady out of my car. And she, she won't get out. She's all pissed off at me. And then the real taxi driver that she had called arrives and sees me and is like, hey, who are you? Like, he thinks I'm trying to steal her fare. So he wants to get into a fight with me. And I'm like sweating. You know, I'm like, I'm supposed to go into this place. But anyways. We finally, we finally are able to get the lady. I'm able to get the lady out and, and, you know, screw this guy. And I drive into the place, pretend that I am, you know, lost and end up and end up identifying the guy and, and the whole works. It worked out later down the road. But that case, we, my partner and I, we started talking about. And, and so he uh, wrote up an operation. And at the same time, we and while we're doing that, we're also recruiting informants. So we got this one particular informant by working with the South Narcotics police guys, uh, Metro South Narcotics. And we put together this operation. We, we, you know, this informant would call it in and we pretended to be baggage handlers at the airport or at the seaport, whatever was needed. That's what we did. 
And all of a sudden we start making seizures and start making cases and start making seizures and cases. And that's how we started developing. That's when I really, really started. And about that time, I had read um, Joe Pistone's book, My Undercover Life in the Mafia. And I thought that that guy, he did it right. Like he he infiltrated deep. And that's what we that was our intention with Operation Overlord to set up a import export company and have people come to us. And they did to, to ship their 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 products and to do everything. And we traveled all over the world on this. And uh, but but that's that's kind of the the concept of, of how it worked. And so when you do this and you're, you're moving around, you're doing all these undercover things, you're making these cases, how fast are these cases spider webbing into each other? Um, or, or does it take a little time to build that up to where you can make a huge case against someone? Well, we started it all of a sudden it was, it was, well, so it was factions of it, right? Because in one instance, we would get uh, an individual that would send us a load, uh, like a like a load through the airport, and we'd get it, and we'd work with the South Narcotics guys, and they, they'd sell it on the street in their price. We'd get that money and then send it back, and we'd do all that so that he could ship a container load. And th- that case would take a little longer because we had to get all that uh, done, right? But there were other cases where they would just ship it. We, we needed to make a delivery, and they were quick quick, quick. So it was, it was both through these, through the money that we were making from these cases, we set up this, this incredible warehouse and, and office space. Uh, we put people working there. We had, you know, cars, apartments on the beach. We had, we had the, 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 the perfect mirror, um, uh, you know, storefront, if you will, operation that with all the backstops, my partner, Miles was like super creative in how to, you know, hey, you know, you're you can have this. He knew all the immigration documents, so he would get us like these special documents that that like for me, I was I had a Cuban passport or or it wasn't a real passport. It was sort of like a, what they gave people that couldn't get their passports, and I had that, and which on many occasions I I had to show different people while I was working on the cover, and it and it worked and it worked. So we were creative like that in in, in getting these uh, these cases through. Is this where you decide, because I would say you spent the majority of your career, even though you did get a lot of narcotics, you spent the majority of your career with money. Yes, it it sort of was both, right? So so Operation Overlord mainly for us was narcotics, right? It was was under the umbrella of a narcotics investigation. But through that, for example, this one particular case that was a flower, a security uh, unit in a flower place that would ship flowers come from fresh cut flowers from Colombia. The security guards were all corrupt and they were all bringing, you know, Coke inside the flower boxes. So we would then get their Coke, then, you know, push it through. Uh, eventually we were seizing it and then, and then get the money that they were getting paid to do it and launder their money. So we got the whole bang there. So, so we, we did aspects of money laundering with these narcotics investigations. So but, um, yeah. that would be where my question's going to with that. Is that where you kind of decide that you like that a lot? The, the anti money laundering, because when you talk money laundering and you talk a narcotics case, narcotics case fit, you know, the elements of the offense and stuff, money laundering right. is a completely <clears throat> different world. You're going through FinCEN, you're going through a lot of different stuff, um, checking bank accounts, subpoenas, all that kind of stuff. 
it's a much yeah. more in-depth case. Did you found that that was more uh, rewarding to you than a narcotics case or uh, just you just found that you enjoyed it? Well, it definitely was more rewarding because you, you really hit them where it hurts, right? Like you seized, you know, like, like you said, the operation, we see so many, so many, you know, suitcase, so many containers of dope and yet they kept, they kept coming. But when you hit them with the money, that's where it started to hurt. For me, what happened was we did one particular case where we got burned and, and then they put a hit out on myself and on the informant. Um, and so I had to kind of like step out of the picture for a while and so at just about that time i get picked for the office in 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 venezuela i go overseas an assignment uh, as a as an assistant as a they call them customs reps but you were like assistant attaches and i thought great what a what a perfect world right so i go from from miami to venezuela and we covered colombia and and uh ecuador and um Guyana, we covered like seven different countries out of there, spent most of my time in Colombia there. But that then while while in Venezuela, I've supported other investigations. And that's where I really got the taste for the money uh, cases, right? Because a lot of them had to do with laundering money from these countries back uh, and forth. And so that's where I started seeing the case, even though I was just in a support role at the time. When I leave Venezuela, I get a supervisor job in Chicago running a, um, a uh, financial task force. And that's where I really got wet there. I mean, I, that's where I, I really got, you know, as they say, um, you know, like do dove into that world, the money world. And, and yes, very rewarding because of the seizures you would make. Well, let's talk about Venezuela for a second. So you're in Caracas, Venezuela, uh, 93 to 97. The right. countries that you're working with aren't, not small at this time, and they are very much on the geopolitical radar at the time. You're working with Colombia, Ecuador, French Guyana, Guyana, uh, Peru, uh, Suriname, and Venezuela. You're working with countries that are known for narcotics trafficking and money laundering, and quite frankly, known for uh, regimes of government that are completely corrupt from top to bottom. So, uh, absolutely. Going into that and working in Venezuela, you are kind of the United States representative. So we need to talk about how hard it was at this time to to make those because you learn from Bob, make connections everywhere. But here it's going to be a little harder because in the United States, you you know more or less who you can trust and who you can't. You're in a foreign country now that you've never been in before and you're trying to make mutual cooperation agreements with them. I'm, I'm guessing those are kind of memorandums of understanding between the two countries and stuff, but not knowing who you can trust and who you can, uh, you know, turn down. How are you doing all this? It, it, it was tough and you're right. It, you had to really be careful who you worked with, um, how you worked and the levels of, um, of individuals you can work with, right? Because you might have a great relationship with the guys on the ground, let's say, but once it gets to the leadership and if you're impacting some major uh, operation that they have, then you'll get blocked, right? You, you, you won't be able to move. Like, so going to Venezuela uh, was eye-opening for me because I only had worked mainly narcotics cases and some money cases. But when you go to Venezuela, when you go overseas, 
you're you're just you're representing the whole agency and say a, a, a case out of new york might have i don't know um you know a, 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 like i worked a case that had dinosaur bones that had been stolen from a museum and smuggled back i, you know, I had no idea how to work that or what to do with that so you really had to learn all these all these things and for for a case like that you'd get great cooperation but say i worked a, a, another case out of uh actually it was out of uh, texas uh where where our office had identified all these stolen cars were being shipped to venezuela and it turns out the, the individuals in venezuela the, 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 the law enforcement agencies that i was working with their leadership were the ones involved in the you know organization of smuggling them into the country so we were getting you know there was walls and obstacles every time you tried to get any cooperation on that but but yeah you had to really kind of maneuver through that and, and learn who you had to work with to, to get things done there we i remember we did a training with the um uh the, their national guard right there the venezuelan national guard and we did three weeks of of intense operations right i took them to florida so that they could see how how we worked at airports and how we identified you know internal uh, swallowers and smugglers you know that ingest the drugs and how they do it in the suitcases and all that. And then we did it, we took them back to, to Venezuela and did some operations on the border with Colombia. And then they went on their own. And I remember one particular incident where I'm actually at the airport and it's our last week of training. And uh, I'm there sitting, talking with one of their um, lieutenants and one of their you know lower uh, regular guys come, comes running and says, hey, hey, we, Mr. Alonso, we, we want to talk to you because we think we have a, a, a potential swallower. Like, oh, this is fantastic. So run run over there with them. So in Miami, when they had seen how we operated, we identified a potential swallower. We take them over to our x-ray area and saw the x-rays. And sure enough, the guy had swallowed a, you know, some balloons and he was taken away, right? So in Venezuela, they don't have that that sophisticated, you know, medical unit where they had an x-ray. So they had this guy, uh, you know, propped up, two guards were holding him, and he's a Colombian guy, and he's like saying, please, 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 tell me in Spanish, please, please, don't let them do this. And I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what are they doing. They're thinking, and they explain to me, they show me all the evidence they have. You know, it's the typical, you know, paraphernalia that a, that a swallower would have. And I'm thinking, man, you guys got a good case. It's probably going to work. And uh, he says, but we don't have the fancy equipment you guys have in the States. So we were thinking we we're going to put them through here. And they had this big, giant um, uh, X-ray beat up old machine. It looked like an old ton of metal. And they put suitcases through that. They were thinking of just putting the guy on the on the conveyor belt and just sliding them through. <laughs> work. And I was like, man, I was thinking, you know, I don't know. It, it could work. I don't know. But, you know, I think you guys are going to have to decide. But I was kind of hoping that they did. And they're like, OK, we understand. Thank you very much. Just wanted to get your opinion. And off I went. And I'm sure they put them through that conveyor belt. <laughs> oh, I, I'm I'm sure they did. I want to go back for just a minute, though, when you talk about because you were part of the negotiation, a bilateral treaty between U.S. and Venezuela. And that established the protocol for all these stolen U.S. vehicles that were ending up in Venezuela. So I say all right. that to say this, when you're doing that and you're establishing a protocol, one, you're an outsider in Venezuela. Two, you're working against a government who is on the take from these vehicles. 
How do you get that passed? Who do you have to talk to? And how high up do you have to go to get through all the muck to actually get this case prosecuted and taken care of? So it took me all the time that I was in Venezuela, but I guess I was four years or yeah, about four or five years. It took me that time to get that accomplished. And I had to work. I had to include uh, the FBI as well because they had that similar issues. And we, we went up to, you know, at the, at the uh, vice minister level, right, of, of the government, explaining to them how this is so important. And we also used at the time it was the national... NCIB, I think NCIB, the National, uh, I forgot what it's, National Insurance Bureau. They, they, they were, uh, they, they had the, the insurance companies have this bureau that investigates these stolen cars to try to get, you know, to try to ease up on, 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 on paying out insurance. So they were, they were, I think it's the NCIB or NICB or something like that. Anyways. We worked with them and they would give us lists of vehicles that had been stolen in different locations. And then through paying, you know, paying uh, informants and paying people inside the Venezuelan government to get us information to identify where those cars were. And we did. We found the location. Myself and, and, and another the attache that was there for the FBI, we found the location. And we had this guy actually go out there and take pictures of the cars. And we went to one of the generals that was working this case and told him, we know where the cars are. We need to we need to fix this. And they were like, no, these cars aren't here, whatever. And I and I had them all in my file. And I said, in this file, I have pictures of very high-level individuals in the government here driving these cars. And he was like, Well, we need those files. And I said, Well, yeah, but first we need to figure <laughs> yeah, it out. I bet so you do. It was a give and take type thing. And I never did show them the files, but they then agreed to enter into a bilateral agreement with the US to you know, ship cars that were identified as stolen and that had been identified in the country and shipped them back to the U.S. Did find six of our vehicles. We had a list of 50 that we were looking for, but they gave us back six of them. And uh, we ended up getting those. And that agreement was signed and kept there. And, and eventually the, the guy who replaced me continued working with him. But he, he told, tells me that it, it still was a major obstacle in getting all these done. Well, I'm sure, especially with a list of 50, you get six back. I mean, that's, it, it seems, yeah. it almost seems that you would look at it as futile yeah. of an investigation. Yeah. That's exactly. That's a perfect word because you had to, you had to, you're stepping on eggshells because you didn't want, you had to be cautious and not embarrass them, right? Because at the same time, you know, you had to, the, the ambassador of the country is working on all other kinds of agreements with the government. And you don't want, you know, someone on the mission team to embarrass the government. And, and that was causing quite embarrassment. I briefed the ambassador on the case and, and he was, well, let, let's see if we can get these done. They, to them, this wasn't a, an important issue. Right. To them, I mean, it was an issue, right? They're not going to brush it off, but it was more important oil situations that were going on and all these other things and the negotiations that were happening. So our stolen vehicle case was, was something they had to deal with. So uh, you had to really, really be careful how you navigated through that and not piss off the wrong you know, government official there. So it, it, it taught me a lot about diplomacy. And it was very good later on when I did become the actual attache of other offices. I learned a lot from those dealings I had early on in Venezuela. 
So you get promoted to supervisory special agent. Uh, you're moved to Chicago. We're talking about 1997 now. You're part yeah. of Operation Casablanca. Yeah. So well, Casablanca, well, Operation Casablanca was actually a, uh, an operation, a, a major, at the time, probably the largest money laundering operation for the U.S. Customs Service. Out of, out of, it, it initiated out of California, the Los Angeles office. Had some great agents out there that, that and some great informants that were working these major cases. They had identified corrupt officials in, in Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela, and all over the place and, and moving large, significantly large amounts of money through these banks with the, 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 the whole knowledge you know, that it was drug money and moving right through these major banks. Um, and they had these incredible investigations, right? So those cases stemmed and, and, and branched out into different areas of the U.S., right? In Chicago, it was just, just overflowing, right? So um, uh, that operation was there. Uh, there was an opportunity for a supervisor, and I went there. So is this the time, I'm trying to remember, is this the time when Wachovia and all the banks are starting to get in trouble because they're supposed to be following AML protocols, the anti-money laundering protocols and, and you know, with suspicious activity reports and, and CTRs and everything, where they're not doing that, where they're actually working to protect their customers over law enforcement. Is this when all this is going on? Yes, it's simultaneous. It's simultaneously going on, but they they were they were completely evading not 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 just the the, the you know factions of the BSA Act right they they were just completely moving into you know just overlooking that and just laundering these funds straight up. They were they were high level bank officials that were making these things happen, and and it was at their call right. So so. Uh, you know, I went over, I take over this financial tax task force and our job is to sort of like, so LA, LA undercover operation guys would come in and they'd have already negotiated a money pickup and they were doing pickups to the tune of a million, two million, which was unheard of, right? Even $4 million pick up a money pickup of $4 million and launder it, you know, through the, through the, through these, these corrupt banks. And so I came from, you know, the time you don't, you don't pick up 4 million, you seize 4 million, right? So here I am supervising this group. And in one, one particular uh, uh, day, this particular uh, thing, my team was assigned to the perimeter, right? To make sure we protected, uh, you know, the, the undercover agents were being protected by an interior team. And then we took, we took the perimeter where these guys are going to then pull out, we'll follow them bed them down somewhere and then maybe a week or two later after watching the house we see activity then we'll hit that house and, and then make our seizures right but at least the money would be picked up and laundered and and protect the sources and protect the undercover agents but on this particular evening um, this case was getting so big that that they were filming with you know different news agencies right and you know with a with a non-disclosure agreement they had all this stuff so this particular night we have a, a someone from the washington one of the one of the Washington newspapers that's sitting with us, and and we're just sitting there waiting, and we see you know the cover guys come in, they go to the to it was a Home Depot in Cicero, Illinois. It's freezing out, doesn't it's snowing? There's snow on the ground. It's just like one of those days, one of those nights. You just don't want to be out. It's just horrible. But we're there. We are in the car, fogging up, you know, waiting, and we see the, the van pulls in, 
uh, guys come out and they go in, they talk to our guys, they go into the Home Depot and they come out with these tubs, these giant tubs of storage and they go into the van, they close the doors and they're putting the money in these tubs and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you know, transfer it to whatever car these other guys are in. And, um, they open the door and a tub <laughs> falls out. And I'm telling you like stacks of money just into the snow. I'm thinking we got to seize this. This is just too good right here, right now. So I'm trying to make the call to the guy and I'm getting a call from the ASAC who ran the shop. He goes, you better you do not seize nothing you don't touch anything you let this go Alonzo. you're gonna see you're gonna be able to get this later on but it was just to me so crazy and i knew he was right he was right because that money needed to be you know flowed through the systems to make the case going but it was just so obvious and 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 down the road there's a there's a patrol car you know just in the in the car it's snowing you know didn't see and here it is and i'm thinking look how ironic you're in the middle of cicero illinois in a, in a home depot parking lot four million dollars in cash in the snow yeah it'd be and, great to see it but and, yeah it. and i was when you said that i'm thinking just have the patrol car come up make it look like it's just a suspicious person stop you get the money but yeah exactly i i, I absolutely understand thinking. the thing that's blowing my mind that i'm not understanding because hmm. you're talking about one million dollar pickups four million dollar pickups how in the hell they're taking it. To, I, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around them taking it to these banks because I mean, you're talking like $10,000 is suspicious nowadays. Exactly. A million to $4 million. I don't even understand how they're bringing it in and they've got to be meeting with bank presidents and, and all that. So if you can, can we talk a little bit how they were doing this in the banks? So I'll talk in general because the the, the 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 main investigation was run out of our L.A. office, right? But I have the knowledge of how they were doing it, right? So they had these incredible informants that had put had put uh, our undercover agents in contact with the main contacts, right? And so they assured them that they had banks on payroll and then they would go and talk to the banks and the banks were actually willing to move this money through their systems, right? And so... You know, yeah, ten thousand dollars is suspicious. But if I'm if I'm a bank official that have control over what is happening in my bank, and I'm getting paid, you know, millions of dollars or you know, significant amounts of money to bypass all the controls that are in place, it's going to be worth it for me. And uh, and that's how they would do it. They would they would legitimately do it that way. And they were making so much money from the sales that you know, like when when in in, in Miami when we worked the money cases. A pickup of anything over two hundred fifty thousand dollars had to be approved and scrutinized, Absolutely. because then you could be okay. You're going to be laundering more than what you're actually seizing. So you, you know, undercover operations had to have a balance of all right. I've seized so much and laundered so much. So you always had to have the seizure amount higher than your laundering. But but the L.A. investigation was uh, unique in that it broke all those barriers because they were able to justify the level of corruption and the level of the, the high level of uh, players that they were investigating that they had on tape that they had actually breaking these laws in all these countries including us um that was going to lead to a major you know change in how the banking industry was was held so that's why they were they were the only operation as far as i know 
that was allowed to break those barriers and allow and and it was all authorized by you know working with the u.s attorney's office and you know it was all all approved by uh you know by the government and so on the backside is it a basic with these banks when they're picking it up on the backside after it's been laundered is it small bills to big bills big bills to small bills what are they what is the goal of it to get it onto the backside of it so well the goal the goal always is to you know be able to make that cash turn it into usable currency right absolutely so wherever it was going to go if it was going to go to venezuela to get it into the proper at the time it was bolivares uh in in, in colombia the pesos or however it needed to be filtered in mexico also as well right however it needed to get to what wherever it had to right so they they facilitated that so it wasn't really exchange it wasn't so much t- turning it from you know 20 dollar bills into 100 dollar bills it was it was basically getting it off the street and turned into a, a usable currency right it through through the through banking systems right whether it's investing in offshore accounts purchasing property real estate you know whatever it was uh through fake loans insurance uh um you know uh, policies that that never matured or you know all those kind of things yeah, yeah. so that that's what the banking uh, industry helped to filter okay. all those systems to, to filter the money from the street into those systems so that the guys who were you know whose money it was could use it yeah legitimately that's what was blowing my mind was because you're talking about if you're doing small-scale money laundering going to <laughs> casino changing it making it usable to come back you can all right. that, but four million dollars at a time, you're gonna to have to be investing in some big time stuff. And 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 doesn't four million dollars was just one night right. in Cicero, Illinois, and you had and that operation had pickups daily in New York, in California, it, again in Chicago, in Miami, everywhere across the major cities. They were they were just racking in millions and millions of dollars. And what what it showed me is that is that our efforts in pr- trying to stop the drugs it's not working it's just getting in it's here it's 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 just keeps going all right so now we're in 99 2000 uh you go back to miami you're back home uh you're a supervisory special agent now does it feel weird coming home being a supervisor where you started <laughs> out Yes, it, it actually it actually was uh, different. I, I go, I, I come back, and I take over one of the money laundering undercover operations, um, Riptide. We called it Riptide, um, and I go and I take over those. And uh, yeah, it did it did feel awkward at first because here I was, I had left as a as an agent, um, working cases, working all all kinds of cases on the street, and uh, now you know did a tour. But then I felt. That I had gained so much experience, my my time overseas really really helped me see the big picture. And then of course, working in Chicago, I was I was exposed to all kinds of you know leadership roles because of this operation that was so controversial and so you know significant that it it had always questioned you know questioned around. So I was the supervisor of one of those groups sometimes having to answer to those questions, right? So now I come to Miami, a little bit awkward, but actually feeling, again, I know the area, I know the people, I know the I know uh, the system there. So 
it, it was it was I, I I all that awkwardness went away right away. I I, I smoothed right into the the game. Well, and the reason I ask this is because I mean you know in this career you come back as a supervisor and it's your buddies that are still working there as agents and they're like ah screw this guy. Uh, we know what you did as an agent. We know. And so it, it I agree. It's got to be awkward coming back. I think the way you show it, though, is I think your track record showed it. I mean, you're 12 years into your career about. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and you've already been head of major operations. So I would almost think that this would be as you come back, your your service kind of speaks for itself. So, so what happens, Dustin, is, yeah, thank you for that. And, and, and I guess when you, being an agent in Miami, you're exposed to so many things as opposed to being an agent, let's say, in Ohio. And nothing against Ohio, right? But, but just, just saying, right? So at that time in the 80s, you, working in a, a narcotics group, I mean, I, 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 I can tell you, I don't know how many undercover operations were done, and they weren't the the sophisticated ones that I really wanted to do, like Joe Pistone had done those. I, I strived for that. As close as we got was Operation Overlord, right? Which we got pretty close, but not not as not as as much, right? But I had done there there were times when I would do popping in the morning, I, I'm meeting somebody to pick up a suitcase, you know, loaded with with dope. Another one I'm turning over some money. You know, I could have do, do three meetings in a day or or I leave my house in the morning and my supervisor told me, get on a plane, you got to go to Puerto Rico, pick up money, take that money with some passports that they're going to give you and go to New York where you're going to meet the guy who's going to, who's going to, who needs that stuff, who's escaping from New York to Colombia because he's being indicted. And when I do that, who gives me, you know, orders to, to hit somebody. And so this is the kind of stuff we're doing like on a daily basis and and my partner miles and i would talk about them and say it was crazy it's like it's unbelievable we you wouldn't you you know i don't know how we we didn't burn out it was just constantly it was just we just loved it and it was constant work like that um but yeah having that ability to to, to expose me to and the one thing i learned was if i'm going to supervise people i always wanted to have the ability to to you know i don't know just Try to work. I, I didn't have this ego. I'm the boss, and you're gonna do it the way I say. No, I'm I'm always willing to learn. But my experience and garnered throughout all my different posts and and, and duties helped me to be a better boss, right? Because I would say, no, maybe we could do it this way or that way. Or and then you also have some incredible agents that you know are not bosses but have great ideas, and you learn from them, right? And you and you incorporate that. So I think that's what really helped me that ability to be able to adapt and adjust, you know. Make me a pretty good supervisor. <coughs> How many of the people that were originally in Miami are still there as you come back as a supervisor? So there was a mix. There was a, a, a lot still there. And then there was this new, new agents that were coming on board. Um, and some were good. Some were lost. Some didn't know. Some had not been exposed to, you know, the laws and the tactics and didn't understand customs, you know, so I was, I was getting concerned as the, the new guys that were coming in, but so it was kind of a mixture of, of new and, 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 and old, and old, uh, school. Now at this time, 99, 2000, we're coming into Y2K. We're coming into a lot of computer things. 
is everything switching over? Because you guys are working, like you said, with major amounts of money, major amounts of dope. Is everything an easy transition over? Because you're talking about when you started cocaine cowboys. Now you're into technology and technology in 2000 in criminal activity is really starting to take off. Yeah. Yeah. It was a learning, it was a, a learning experience, a learning curve. And so this is where the new guys came in, right? The new guys had these, these different uh, tactics and ideas. And so you, you try to incorporate that into the way you did an operation, right? So, so nowadays you weren't going to, you know, you didn't need, you didn't need the the money counters like you did before, right? Where you would spend hours in the room. Right. County, county, ah, oh, damn, I missed up. Let's do it again. Now you you just box it all up, bag it all up, take it to the Federal Reserve. You had you had a special relationship with them, and they count it for you, give you the counts, and then you can come back to your, you know, to your source or your UC guy and tell them, all right, this is the count, and you go back and forth. Those kind of things. So you adapted to what the new issues were and the new uh and the new changes but at that now at this time i'm thinking all right i want to make more changes i want to i want to be able to do my own type of cases and, and this and that and so i i had an opportunity to uh become the asac of the narcotics division this is before 9 11 before we change over and i uh i apply and i get it and i'm like man i did good but i really nobody nobody had put in for it I was the only guy who, who put in for it and I got the job and I'm thinking, damn, now I'm thinking, why did I do that? So that's exactly Miami, what I was just about to say <laughs> in Miami office uh, to be the ASAC of the narcotics division at that time, you had seven narcotics groups and there was every type of thing going on at any given time. There was basically no rest for the ASAC of the narcotics division. So, but just be careful what you wish for. Sometimes you get it. Yeah, like I said, I was just about to say, well, if you're the only one that put in, someone must know something that you don't. So uh, <laughs> something that's going on there. Uh, while you're there, you supervise investigations led to $16.1 million in seizures, 170 kilos of cocaine, 7 kilograms of heroin, 45 violators. Now, here's the interesting part. It led to the identification of over 100 bank accounts at suspect financial institutions. So are you seeing a steady rise in financial institutions that are really caving to these uh, rules? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because so, so most of the, these cases, the way we worked them, at least the way they were working these different operations. So they would say, all right, great. You, you know, we're, we're picking the money up for you. We're picking it up for, I don't know, let's say 250,000. We're getting instructions to wire money to this bank, that bank, this bank, this bank, or this account that account and they were all different different reasons right perhaps it was a debt that this particular individual owed someone and so we'd send it to this account and then we'd link all those accounts to see because they're receiving the proceeds of these uh you know narcotic sales right so that's how we were identifying these bank accounts and yes in in many instances it was again a bank manager somewhere that had designated certain accounts to so that they could wire the money and then once it got to that account then that account would be moved and changed erased and then that manager would make sure it got to whoever it got to. And um, and you that's it. There was no further trace of this account. So even though we tried following up many times and always had, you know, reached the dead end until we identified the bank manager and, you know, moved from there. But, yeah, banks were caving into it because the money's just too good. That's, 
they get these guys and they offer them the world or, or <clears throat> you know, they've gotten they've gotten him on something else. And now he's he's, you know, tied to, to the cartel. And he's got to work for them. Well, and, and it's interesting that you say the banks, the money was so good for these banks, but it, it's really not good for the banks. It's good for the managers. It's good for the individuals that are moving the money. Overall, yes, it looks like you have a very productive bank, but mostly that money's going to people that are funneling it. The interesting part of what you just said, though, was that they are almost <clears throat> eliminating these digital footsteps that they're leaving uh, at the time that you can't follow them until you've actually identified them, which is very hard to do if there's no breadcrumbs to follow. That, that's it. So our, our tactics, our investigative tactics at the time were, okay, we're going to now follow this bank account, which is, you know, now it's going to lead us to the next one and the next one. And you're right. We would reach a dead end and we're like, what's going on here? And it's just someone manipulating accounts, right? Like, all right, Dustin, you send me, send me the 250 to this account. Tell them to send it to this account. All right. We send it to that account. And then now that account immediately is moved to somewhere else. And then this account is no longer existing. Nobody even knows about it. And when you go to the bank to, you know, with, with your, your summons and trying to figure out what's going on, no, we don't have this account or we don't know. Well, we know it, we, it was there because we forwarded this money to this account. So so that's what, what we are running into. We had to change our investigative tactics and then started seeing, oh, okay, it's it's they've they've corrupted some banking official that's helping them do that. Which is, which is later on really comes back and bites the banks in the ass because you start getting into where they were making fake accounts just to make fake accounts. So they have all these unused fake accounts that they could transfer and cancel. And that's what some of the banks got in trouble for. Now, moving into the next phase of your career, into the 2000s. And I want to talk specifically after 2001 because I believe, and I think you would agree, Money laundering completely changed after 2001. It became less of a counter-narcotics and more of a counter-terrorism or narco-terrorism, whatever you want to call it. But then we, you see a whole new level of hawalas <clears throat> that are transferring money now, and that's no digital footprint at all. So can we talk about you trying to take over this in a brand new world? Because that is a brand new world into law enforcement. Yep, it was, it was extremely difficult. Because you, as you said, all of a sudden now you, you, the focus changes, right? I came, I went to, um, <clears throat> and at the same, our agency go, is, goes through these changes as well, right? So 9-11 occurs, all of a sudden, you know, you know, you, know the, the, you have to start focusing, looking, looking for terrorist type activity, which we, what is terrorist type activity for us? We had to kind of figure that out. So now we're partnering any potential case that has any type of this with the FBI. We're sending people to FBI task force. In fact, Bob, at that time, I was I was uh, one of one of the ASACs over this security task force, and Bob was one of the agents we sent. Uh, but before that, <clears throat> there's there's no one knows what's going on. So I get sent to Washington to work on a best practices task force to figure out. All right, we're going to merge agencies. We're going to become Homeland Security. We're going to be Customs and Immigration, which it was a nightmare as well, um, but we're going to identify the best practices. And so I go there for a few months trying to, you know, identify, right, who has the best, what agency has the best practice for tracking this? All right, we're going to use this process then. If the INS had that process and like that until that occurred. So when I come back to Miami, I'm no longer 
I don't I no longer have oversight of the financial division. I now have oversight of the terrorism task force and am focused on strategic type investigations, any and domestic terrorism. And now I have immigration functions, which thank God my background was immigration, right? From the Border Patrol. Uh, but this is a whole new concept now that we have to apply on how do we how we do our investigations, including how we track our money, where we went now from, you know, what are the violations for, you know, funneling terrorist activities? Like how, how, what 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 do we focus? What elements of the law do we need to prove now uh, to to get these violations? And that's what we had to rearrange and change and retrain. It was not it was not easy. It was not a, an overnight thing. But let's go <clears throat> even deeper into that we mentioned Hawala's before, but you're talking about money laundering in a completely different way. It's a guy with a notebook in the United States, writing a ledger and a guy in Afghanistan, picking up the money with a ledger. There's no wire transfers whatsoever. So if you're trying to track terrorist activity and you're trying to track the money laundering, what are you looking for? Because they're not purchasing anything. Yeah, it's exactly right. So you, you, it became very difficult to prove that, right? So you had to you had to find first of all the violation, and then and then you had to 100% be able to prove that that the the money that this individual is calling to move to this other individual, right, uh, is is for the exact same either purchase or movement of this particular, you know, whether it be narcotics or whether it was whatever it was, right. It, it became very difficult to prove that we we had a tough time switching to that um, and and making cases and investigations after that on 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 those types of of um, you know investigations. We had to we had to work real close with our U.S. attorneys to and even they didn't sometimes understand. And so we had certain cases that we could prove that you know certain weapons were purchased for this uh, particular uh, uh, incident. But we they could we couldn't 100% show that the call he made to this individual, uh, you know, for that money to be picked up there because we, in the past we would have either a checking transactions or a, or a, or a tangible transaction. In this case, was just the call, so it could have been for anything to you know to pay for you know whatever it was, furniture or or, or goods or anything like that. So it became very difficult for us. It was it was not easy, and I remember having. Uh, numerous conversations with the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and FBI. Uh, we, we, we were in a state of, ba- uh, not battle, but um, conflict a lot of times because we were stepping over each other on cases and investigations. Um, you know, I, I, so many times I had to sit with, you know, having the U.S. Attorney be sort of like the mediator between agencies because we had a case that we thought, you know, we were investigating and, and then all of a sudden, you know, we have this cab driver we believe is is moving, you know, is, is involved in some terrorist activity where the FBI already has that individual off on another investigation, a lot more major. And we're having to, you know, what we thought we had proof of transferring funds. It was something that they had already done. And it, it was just a nightmare lesson at that time to, to, to work those cases. So and because our guys at the time were trying to get the concept, you know, the correct concept of how to do it. Um, it was just, you know, I would say it's sort of like chaos at the time until, until we got the hang of it. So there's, there's kind of a three-part question to this one. If you can pinpoint 
where do you think the problem lies in that when you're talking about the the there's no deconfliction, there's nothing going on? Number two to it would be whose fault is it for the failure? If there is a specific thing that you can put out for the failure. And then for the third part of the question, how do you overcome those things? Because as we've already talked about, uh, investigations change completely after 9-11. Yeah. So that's a great question. So I always looked at it like this and I always thought of it like this, and this was my management style and it's, and it is to this day, you get the egos out of the way and you, and you sit and you talk and you communicate and it doesn't matter whose investigation it is. Of course, you know, Customs or Homeland Security wants to be the lead. FBI wants to be the lead. DEA wants to be the lead. But you know, other other agencies. At the end of the day, to really, really be impactful and, and, and make a difference, you have to wash all that aside and sit and communicate. So I I made it a point to have my counterpart, you know, as the as the ASAC of you know the FBI and the ASAC of DA to have you know conversations with them on cases we were doing. And, and work with them, have our agents. I had I had agents in their offices working investigations together jointly. And it didn't matter that, you know, and, and made made you know friendships with them to to, to 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 make sure we were working the cases right. So my opinion, that's how you do it. You have communication. There's some guys that you know still are you know conflictive or whatever. Uh, but but you have to overcome that if you really want to be successful in that that's the way to do it. You have to purposely go out of your way and make the contacts, make those, you know, engage your other other counterparts so that you're working seamlessly on these types of cases. Use your authorities correctly, right? Homeland Security has incredible authorities when it comes on the immigration side and on the border search side. Uh, those authorities are not, you know, the FBI doesn't have those authorities. DEA doesn't have those authorities. So if you use each other's authorities appropriately in the way it should be, you would be fantastically successful. Have constant engagement, and and to me, that's that that's the way to do it. That's the way to overcome any obstacles or any you know, I don't know, friction in investigations. So you do this for pretty much ten years before you move on to your next assignment. <clears throat> do you see a change in? How you do things, and that it works a lot better by the end of your tenure, or by the end of it, are you still seeing that there's there's still a little kickback from some organizations? Because if I remember correctly, as you guys start developing into homeland security and immigrations <clears throat> and customs, and just kind of becoming this umbrella of all these different alphabets, yeah. that's where the trouble starts really occurring. Yes, we had to find our identity. Um, the toughest part was, you know, when you were a customs agent, everybody knew that you were a customs agent. You knew your, your authority, you knew your law. Everybody knew it. The judges knew what customs was, uh, you know, senators, governors, ambassadors. But now you're Homeland Security and they have a concept of what it is, but really no one could figure that out. So you had to, you had to, uh, sort of, you know, get find your footing and then once you had that footing then move forward with that right and so we we spent i don't know how long looking you know what badge were we going to use you know what what credentials were we going to use until all that was sort of sorted out 
we we were we were we were not i don't know i i remember standing outside of a of a meeting in the embassy and and um i was introduced as the attache of uh ice right and they were like hmm, ice oh. and i had to explain to to this visiting staff um uh, you know what what we were and i'm like you're coming from washington don't you know that you know i didn't say that though but i'm like don't you understand that this is the the president just put this together but that's how we had to do it and, and until we got that working but but i made it a point to work very closely with the secret service with the dea with the fbi in those countries and and briefed in our country mission teams you know what our operations were and what we were doing and then i'd have one-on-ones with you know the deputy chief of mission and brief them on our operations and and sort of like educating them as to what we were doing to help the mission so that that was helpful that really was helpful <clears throat> but when it came to play what you're talking about is when you started dealing with the for example in spain it was the spanish national police and the the two uh, financial they were both uh, competing agencies if you will right they both worked the same types of cases one was a military type group another was more police <clears throat> and they had similar issues as, as we did but we had to really educate them as to what we did and how we worked too so it was a constant you know educate ed- education and process well i asked that to ask this question because we move on to the final phase of your career 2010 through 2015. now this <clears throat> is what i mean by at this time you are U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, Homeland Security Investigations, Office of (laughs) International Affairs, attache to Madrid, Spain. Now, that in itself is a mouthful. The reason that I ask you that was because that seems like it would be confusing to anybody, especially trying to work in a foreign country. Exactly. And it was. It, it, It was. You said it. Here we had to say, wait a minute, your your homeland security, your your so and imagine I have to I had to translate that and translate that to Spanish and and explain that to them so so it was very easy. Who are you? Oh, I'm the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Oh, FBI. Who are you? A drug Enforcement Agency. Oh, DEA. Who are you? The Secret Service. Who are you? Okay, s- wait a few minutes. I'll explain that to you. So I am Homeland Security. I am DHS. I am this and that. So it it, it took it took forever. So. So the way we showed them is we proved, um, we, you know, we showed them through our work, through the investigations that we did, you know, because our offices in the States were making incredible cases and then they would need some assistance. And, and, and so I went out and, you know, solicited the help of, of these police agencies, you know, would get them, get us, get them to get us undercover bank accounts so we can filter money through them. Uh, for those uh, investigations that needed that, so moving arms through them. And so they would say, oh, you guys do that too. Oh, you guys do that too. So it got to a point, and we were a lot more flexible, right? So we we weren't picky as to how we held it. We just brought in whatever they needed. We were going to help you. And I, I got our agency to pay for travel to the States for these officers. In fact, we ended up setting up the first European, they didn't want to call it a vetted unit, but it was a task force, right, made up of, all the different agencies in Spain, and they, we brought them and trained them at our academy in Glencoe, Georgia, and they loved it. And so we wanted to keep, keep that. FBI does that, right? They do an academy for foreign law enforcement. They get two 
different, you know, law enforcement agencies from different parts of the world, put them through their academy and they love it. It's a great experience for these, you know, they feel great after they come out, they have a certificate from the FBI. So I wanted to do the same thing for us. And we started that. We were the first unit uh, to come out of there and it was great and established great friendships and great contacts. So anything, anytime you need, you could just pick up the phone and call a Spanish national police guy and say, Hey, I need, I need you to get this real quick because uh, this is happening and they, you'd get that information right away. So, so that's how I, I did it over there. Well, and, and here's kind of the question to that was when you talk about, you're trying mm -hmm. to explain to them, does it knock a little of the shine off the badge a little bit where you're, you almost feel like you're playing catch up in order to show them that you can do it. You said you did perfectly fine, but do you feel in the beginning like you're playing catch up? Yes, absolutely. It, it was, it was you, after you overcome explaining what your agency does, which I hated all the time because how can you, how can you, how can we be put through this? Right. But then once they understood the massive authority you had, then it didn't matter. We're going to go with these guys because they can get it done. Okay. You, you want to get this case done? I have the context. I have the ability to do that. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're missing uh, some art. We got guys that do that. Oh, wait a minute. You, you know, you're smuggling dinosaur bones. I got that too. What else do you need? You're just, you know, narcotics, money laundering, firearms movement, whatever you wanted, we had it. And so they began to understand it. But yes, as you say, it knocked a little bit of the shine at the beginning. But once you're able to establish that, that this is who you are and what you do. Oh, okay. Now they go. Now they're, now they're knocking on your door. Now they want to work with you. That's what I, I always emphasize. This is, you know, always taking care of them like that. So let me ask you in, in this gigantic career that you've had all over the world, favorite assignment. <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> so I have to say, I loved, I loved, man, I loved every part of it. I, I loved overseas. I love Venezuela. I, I have a daughter that was born in Venezuela. Uh, my wife is from there. Um, I, I, I loved the life in Spain. I worked my butt off there, but I have to say, I, 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 I spent some time in Italy, uh, in the office there. And when I was striving to try to be the, the actual attache there, right? But so, and that was one of the best times too, because it was, uh, you know, I got a chance to learn the language. Um, my wife is also happy talent. So she went up there and, uh, and we thought, man, this could be the beautiful life. So I, I don't know. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's because, you know, I loved everything I've done, but if, if I guess if I had to pick one, um, it would be that, that time in, um, in uh i don't know early on in venezuela because it was an eye-opening experience i had my daughter born there i learned the protocols and and uh i don't know i guess that would be it well i'll let bob know that it wasn't <laughs> when you worked with him so uh he wasn't on that list, no. <laughs> yeah i love bob i, I love because he he's been such an influence to me and uh well you emptied his retirement party Oh yeah, I, he got me. He got me to, and I was honored to that because I never, I never. He called me and he goes, "Hey, Alex, I want you to do it," and uh, I said, "Sure, sure thing, Bob." And so I started gathering. I started gathering all these photos, right? I started thinking, all right, "What am I gonna do here?" Right? All right. So I started gathering all these photos, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I called different people that I knew he knew. I said, "Hey guys, if you have any photos with him on any case or anything, 
And before you know it, listen, I'm getting, I'm getting stacks of photos and I'm, I'm thinking, well, and, and, you know, he's from the old school where, you know, you made a seizure, you sat. So he had probably as many seizures of dope as he had of seizures of money. And I'm trying to figure out, all right, I've had hundreds to choose from. And I, I remember at the time, our, one of our, the guy who was our director walks in and he goes, what is all that? I said, no, this is a, uh, um, you know, I'm planning, Bob, I'm planning Starkman's uh, uh, retirement party. I'm trying to figure, he goes, oh, he probably just walked in on those photos and got in for the picture. I go, no, these are all his <laughs> cases. So the guy was like, whoa, he had probably done more than him, you know. But uh, so it was fun. It was it was fun to do. And uh, I just kept going on and on and on. And people kept giving me drinks. So I kept getting looser and looser and telling more stories. And That's it was a good time. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about what you're doing now, because although you're out of the law enforcement world, now you're taking a civilian side of kind of the law enforcement world where you're really on the inside of what we talked about earlier. These companies that yeah. were trying to get around stuff, you actually work inside to make sure that they're maintaining everything that they need to and be that bridge for law enforcement over to them. Exactly. And so Never in my wildest dreams would I ever think that when I left the government, I would be doing something like this, right? I would, I was going to retire out of Spain. And, you know, we had just come to, to take my daughter. We, we, she wanted to go to school in Colorado. So my wife and I flew to Colorado, got her into the dorm. She had gone to school and then it was time to go back. And my wife and I were going to spend, you know, I think I had a year or two left in Spain and, and that would be it. And, uh, you know, retire and I'm done, right? But my wife could not leave her. She's like, you know, because my daughter didn't want her to go and my wife didn't want her. So she was like our baby. And it's like, oh no. So so I ended up having to rent an apartment and try to figure out what am I gonna do. And and luckily, uh one of our one of our one of our uh friends, one of, when I worked in the Chicago office, um, he had left and was working for the company, Western Union at the time. And I talked to him and I said, look, do I have this problem? I, you know, he goes, well, I, I have an opportunity if you want to become a, you know, a compliance officer. So I'm like, man, what compliance officer? Like, I didn't even know what that was, right? I knew the law, money laundering. I got to attack it from the law enforcement side. But from the other side, it's different because you are training, you are teaching individuals how to prevent your your company from being used by money launderers and, and scammers and all these kind of things. So. So uh, I went to Target and I got a coat and a suit, you know, one of those, you know, buy one and get the other. <laughs> I got a shirt and a tie and it made it look presentable. And because I wasn't planning to do anything. And I went to the interview and, and the guy said, you know, I think you're not going to like it here because, you, you, you know, you, you're used to all these kinds of jobs and you know, this is very mundane. And I'm saying, no, no, I'm ready for this. And, and I'm glad I, I, I did it. That's when I, I, luckily, they gave me an opportunity. And I just dove into the job. I went, you know, I remember getting, remember filling it out and saying, okay, yes, I'm in. And then being told, you know, right, can you come, you know, you have two weeks, like two weeks. I haven't even told anybody I'm leaving. So I, I bought another two weeks. So I had 30 days to, to retire, pack, leave, leave, you know, Spain and come. And it was, it was a nightmare. But on, on Friday was my last day in the government. On Monday, I was in a cubicle in Western Union, you know, my head spinning. I had no idea what I was doing. And, but I learned the job and I realized that 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 this is very important because uh, 
you are teaching people how to prevent them you know from using your company so so i use all the skills i did in law enforcement uh, and i apply it to to what i do now and it's been pretty successful and, I, and i'm really enjoying what i do well being in denver uh you you uh are kind of in the center of everything right now you have a i think you have a mint there you have all different kinds of stuff that has to do with finance you have horrible winters. I went there for spring, <laughs> spring break and couldn't even make it into Denver. I had to stop in Colorado Springs and swore I would never come to Colorado during the winter again. Yeah, uh, it's 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 pretty sorry. brutal. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And and well, I was fortunate that so you know, ended up in Denver and moved all around trying to figure it out and and my wife really didn't like it there cuz again, the cold and the snow and then the craziest thing is my daughter, after about a year, says, eh, you know what? I don't like it here anymore. I'm going to Florida. So we're like, oh, my God, I I retired. I'm working here, and I don't have to be here. So we eventually, um, after the pandemic hit, uh, they allowed you to work remotely. And uh, and then I came to Florida. My parents are down here, and everybody's down here. And then eventually asked to see, you know, they gave me oversight of the Caribbean. And I thought, what am I doing with oversight of the Caribbean in Denver, it's a lot easier to do it from here. And they said, "You're right." So stay down there, and they. So I, I became a remote um, employee for them, and I work here out of out of the Florida office or my own house. I mean, in Florida, and uh, oversee uh, the Caribbean and now um, some uh, Mexico and and uh, parts of the U.S. So let me ask you: in, in all of this and everything that you've done. Um, is there ever an idea that you're going to write a book about it, talk about it at a further thing? Is there, is there anything that you're going to do? Because I know that you've thrown your hat into the acting ring a little bit. You've been in some stuff, but is there ever going to be a time where you kind of go back to that law enforcement and recreate the past, whether that be in screenplay style, book style, whatever it may be. Are there plans for that with you? It's ironic. Uh, this, my wife is always telling me, Alex, you have these great stories. You should, you should, you should do it. My sister tells me, my family tells me, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always just think about it. Of just, shoot. but when Bob called me and said, Alex, I want you to write a forward. I want you to write something on, on this. And and I thought about it and I wrote something on him and you know, and and, and it started it started putting me back and I, and I sort of reflected on my career, right, and what happened and what got me into that and. Kind of like the questions you're asking me and i started writing some stuff and i think i have since you know after i read bob's book uh, i thought man and, and and he has some great great you know stories and i'm thinking wow you know i i could probably do some i have some pretty good stories i could probably do something like that so but i would always be like embarrassed like oh, who's gonna read that you know it's just i'm i'm probably one like you know many others that have but my wife's always telling me you should do it you should do it so I've already started kind of Dustin. I've got some chapters of things that have happened to me in my life and I put them down. And uh, so most likely, yes, there's a long, long, long way about telling you. Yeah. I'm, 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 I have been thinking of doing it. Well, that's good. Uh, I'll, I'll be looking forward to that. So where can people find you? So I'm, I'm, uh, well, I'm, I'm on the typical, you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, um, what's the other one? Twitter. Uh, I do have an IMDb page, so I had to do. I I did that because I, I don't know if you know the story of how we got it. We just I was I was working at the. I time. know there's something about Miami Vice and doing some yes. some background yes. stuff on it. 
we were we were we were myself and another and another colleague of mine Lorenzo Toledo we were we had at the time our undercover school was shut down for some reason I don't know what it was and so we were vetting guys that wanted to do undercover work in Miami we had kind of put up our own school and, and sort of like teaching them kind of to, to weed out who could do it who can't because you know not everybody's cut out for it people think they are but then when it gets down to it you know they're really not so we were kind of trying to do that it just coincided with the the movie Miami Vice was in the process of being made and Michael Mann the director knew our our uh sack at the time our special agent in charge and he came around and he asked you know any undercover work so our our special agent in charge called me and Lorenzo said hey look this is an opportunity we want you to you know kind of talk to Michael Mann and and the actors uh, Colin Farrell and, and Jamie Foxx and we did and we sat there with them and we gave them stories and we talked to them we actually got them into our undercover school they did great we actually before they met me they we did a we we did something that it later came out on HBO Max uh, uh we punked them uh, no I'm sorry uh, HBO self something like that HBO self some it, we, we punked Colin Farrell to thinking he was in a real deal and and he he got so intense and upset that he called our 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 uh, sack late at night and said hey you saved my life I'm sorry you know this and that and so the next morning we thought you know we better tell him because this poor guy you know so so the next morning we went out and met him and he was like yeah I can't believe you bastards you you did this to me you know <laughs> so but he became like such a nice guy and I guess Michael Mann was so appreciative of that he allowed us to get into the movie and we got in you know we did stunts on the movie we got our sag cards we did all this stuff and that led to you know other stuff right we did you know worked on other movies and other other uh, like a, there was a, a series going on here in Miami called burn notice about a CIA agent they get burnt we got in that and so it, was, it became kind of fun and uh now I you know I do some commercials here and there so it's just a hobby you know to do that so it's fun pays good so when you get when you get hired, right? So. <laughs> All right. So let's go over if you can, if you want to. I don't know if you do. Uh, give out where people can find you. So, uh, what do you mean? Like um, what? What any, are your actual handles? Oh, so uh, so on Twitter, uh, I'm Alex Alonzo. Alex underscore Alonzo uh, uh, four one three. Uh, on Facebook, it's just. Alex Alonzo on on um, on Instagram it's it's uh, Alex Alonzo four one three and then um, on I guess that IMDb link is just you if you put in Alex Alonzo Miami Vice or Alexander Alonzo Miami Vice that comes up it does and, uh, I promise you <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of really it or, or LinkedIn I'm you know your typical LinkedIn you just put my name come up that's kind of where I'm at right now and then and then I, I guess I, I as as I get more into the book and the writing I'm, I'm talking to Bob about it and also to Joe Pistone and then once I get better idea of what I'm going to do I, I'll, I'll put something up too and I'll let you know Dustin for sure I'm, I'm I really very appreciate glad you of that being able to have this forum and be able to, to tell my story Thank yeah you. absolutely and speaking of that it, it was a great conversation Alex I appreciate it so much that uh, you came on the show and and you told your side because you say that you're just one of the guys but I think that's what a lot of people are missing these days just one of the guys ends up being someone that they really want to hear about something 
and someone that's been all over the world. So I thank you so much for coming on the show and telling your part. Uh, guys, if you want to find more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all of these conversations are in video form. You can see what Alex looks like. You can take a look at a couple of the pictures. And speaking of a couple of the pictures, if you go to the new website that is alive and running on the internet at dtdpodcast.net, you'll see all of the pictures that Alex sent to me. You'll read his bio and find all of his links where you can just click on them and go right to him. Guys, don't forget, check out Police Coffee. That's one of our sponsors. And if you want to hear the true stories every week from the guys that are putting it out there on the line, you come back here to the DTD podcast. That's going to be the podcast for this week. That's Alex. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.